0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and we are going to continue the real estate saga this whole month. We've been talking about real estate. If you haven't been paying attention or you've missed a few episodes, how dare you? I mean, no worries on that. Go back, listen. We did an overview of real estate. We talked about single family. We talked about investing in syndications passively and how that might work for you. And today we're going to be talking all about tax and the different forms of real estate and how you may be taxed. I've got a special guest on with me today, but before we jump into the interview, let's hear from today's sponsor, which is Physician Financial Services. And They're a business widely recognized in the physician community for disability insurance. It's owned and operated by Larry Keller, CFP, who's been in the insurance and financial services industry since 1990. Now, unlike medicine, which has a standardized path that physicians must take to gain the education and training and experience requirements necessary to attain board certification, the insurance industry does not have that. And while Larry might not be the doctor's first phone call regarding their insurance needs, he's often their last you can find Larry at drpodcastnetwork.com slash Larry Keller, L A R R Y K E L L E R, or in the description of the show. We have recommended Larry hundreds of times. Love Larry. He does a fantastic job. I know he can help you out. All right, everyone, remember that this is not specific to your financial planning, investments, tax, or any other type of advice you could think this to be. Like I always say, it's education or just bad dad jokes. We're excited to have you here. If your first time here, welcome and hopefully you guys get a ton of value. If you've been here for a while, we love you. Thank you for being here. Now let's jump in to the interview with John McCarthy of Physician Tax Advisors. John, what's up, man? Welcome back to the show.
1: Glad to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: I mean, we're kind of tied at the hip at this point since we've worked together at Physician Tax Advisors, but you are significantly more knowledgeable than I am when it comes to tax. And we need to talk about tax and how your taxes are affected by owning real estate and all the different forms of that. And I was like, we got to bring John on. We got to talk about this and get some real good information. So, no pressure.
1: Well, I appreciate that you gave me a couple days off from the big tax deadline for May 17th. So, I'm a little bit rested. I've had my nap today. So, I'm ready to talk. We're good. Hey,
0: you guys don't understand. I gave him five days off. That was it. Tax day finishes. Five days later, he's back in the chair giving out some education, helping us all with some stuff. And John, you work with me personally and help me save some money. And so hopefully you can help everyone learn a little bit about real estate and how your taxes are affected and hopefully save them a little bit of money today. So I think there's four ways we can break this up and I'd like to maybe go through each one. So the first way I'd like to talk about is, well, what if someone listened to the last three shows and like, great. Real estate sucks. I don't want to own it. I don't want it passively. I don't want to take that risk for all the different reasons. I definitely don't want to be an owner of single family and dealing with the landlord. I'm just going to buy the REITs or the real estate investment trusts in my taxable account or in my you know tax deferred accounts, whatever it may be. Obviously in tax deferred accounts, it doesn't matter. Buy and sell, do whatever you want, get dividends, doesn't matter. But in a taxable account, if they're investing in, let's say you know, a real estate index, how are they taxed on that, whether it's capital gains or dividends? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So REITs in a lot of ways look like other type of typical taxable investments that you might have, like mutual funds or you know, individual stocks in a lot of ways in that you're gonna get a tax form at the end of the year at 1099. It's going to have some activity on there that you're going to have to put on your return. REITs for sure will have some income distributions just because of the way they're structured. So you can guarantee that there'll either be some dividends or capital gains income that's going to flow through to your return. Depending on the nature of the capital gains and the dividends, they could be taxed at either a capital gain rate, which is a little bit lower than your ordinary rate in most cases, or it could be taxed at your higher ordinary income rate. And we're going to be looking at anything from 15% all the way up to potentially 23% taxation on the capital gain side and then if it's on your individual income tax side we could be being taxed anywhere from 10% if you're a really low income down at a resident status or or all the way up to 37% on the attending the salary so
0: not to mention states like California that want to tack on 10 12 13% depending on how much you make i'm definitely not in the 13% bracket those are hashtag like goals to be making that kind of money. Definitely not going to happen, but who knows? You never know. So that's a quick overview that is basically your taxable account. It's at your custodian. You're buying it. It's going to be lumped in with all the other securities you own. You will be taxed on it. And hopefully the tax laws that are coming don't end up blowing out what capital gains could look like. That's a whole nother show. Okay. So we've got that piece. Now let's say that someone listened to, I think it was the second show we did all about single family rentals. And they're like, you know what? I like this. I'm going to go buy a house or buy several houses. I'll eventually start paying them off and get that quote unquote mailbox money, even though we've talked about how that is not passive at all. But in the eyes of the IRS, if let's say this physician is working a W-2, I'll jokingly say from, you know, nine to five, but we know that is laughable, but this in the eyes of the IRS is considered passive. So maybe talk a little bit about how that taxation could occur and what they would do, even if they were buying these single family rentals.
1: There's an important consideration there, Ryan, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. This is considered passive income to the IRS. It's looked at, you kind of think of it as two different buckets, right? You've got your W-2 income, which is active income, and then you've got other type of investments, dividends, interests, and rental real estate, all considered in your passive bucket. And In most cases, we won't talk about some of the fringe things here, get too far in the weeds, but in most cases, those buckets have to remain separate when we're looking at things. And that comes into play because what we find is, especially with single family rentals, often we're showing a loss for tax purposes. And what that means is that we can't use that loss to offset our W-2 income like we would like to, with a few exceptions that we can talk about here in a little bit. But for a lot of people, they're not able to offset those losses.
0: So I think it's important to maybe go again, because there's going to be a lot of people who've never bought real estate listening, and there's going to be your veterans. I've gotten some emails from people, by the way, I still love you, even though you've sent me some slightly hate mail saying that I knock real estate a whole bunch and that I'm, I'm not into it or I shouldn't be doing that. And John can attest because he knows all my returns. I am heavily invested in real estate. My whole family is. So I love real estate. It's just not something that I'm going to put my entire net worth into like most people go down that and i say anything in any extremes is bad john there's a lot of people who've never bought real estate yet specifically have bought an investment property maybe they've bought their own home so they get the process a little bit but how could you then turn around and have a loss if you're renting for money and and so i think it's important to talk about well, if you even if you have positive cash flow from a tax side you might not
1: Correct. Yeah, that's one of the often misunderstood areas of how rentals work for tax purposes is that even though you can be cash flow positive, we hope you're cash flow positive, right? That's the goal. Even if you're cash flow positive, you can run a loss for tax purposes. And that's because of something called depreciation. So when you have a rental property and place it into service, you're allowed to take a deduction for depreciation that's based on the original purchase price of the home. So, the way the IRS looks at it, if it's a residential property, let's say your property is $100,000, you're allowed to take 127th 1 of $100,000, 1 127th and a half, 27.5. Don't know how they got to that number, but that's There's our that's CPR. I was like, here.
0: I wonder if he's going to say 27 or 27 and a half. Of course, you did. <laughs> 27 and a half.
1: So, you get 127th and a half of depreciation each year out of that $100,000. It's a non cash deduction but it is a deduction nonetheless and that's what can yield a tax loss rather than uh, what you might intuitively think hey i got more cash at the end of the year i have a profit not in the terms of the irs
0: that's a good point so we're not talking about oh it needed new paint or hey the roof leaked and i need to fix it or my ac went out and i had to fix it further we're not talking about any of that we're talking about this is a separate line item for depreciation That comes into play when we're netting everything out from a tax perspective. You're not going to, you know, save money aside for depreciation. It's not an actual cash transaction. This is a tax transaction on your tax books. And so I think that's really helpful to understand that piece as you're, let's say, buying the property and managing it. But John, what happens to depreciation when you sell the property?
1: Yeah, this is the second most uh, misunderstood area. And we find it a lot.
0: This is the gotcha.
1: You know, clients will often come to us in the year of the sale because they don't feel comfortable, you know, filling out their tax return when they've got this big transaction, they go to sell their rental property. And they're like, I sold it for eh, about the same as I bought it for. I don't expect much of a gain or loss on the return. It should be okay. And then we put the brakes on right there and say, you remember that depreciation thing that you were getting some deductions on each? year. It comes back to bite you in a certain way when you go to sell the property. And that's because of a thing in the IRS world, we're talking about basis. So your cost basis of the property is what you purchase it for minus the depreciation that you take over all of the years that you own it. And what we can find is if you've owned the property for 10, 15 years, you actually don't have much basis left because all of that depreciation deduction that you've gotten over the years So if you go to sell it for even about the same amount that you originally purchased for, let's say there wasn't much appreciation in the area that this property was in, it's not unusual to have a gain for tax purposes in the year of sale.
0: Yeah, that's the big bummer that comes back. And I've talked a little bit about 1031s and how you might be able to exchange. You can't go down. So you can't be like, I have a $200,000 house, and I'm going to buy one $100,000 house. But you can say, I'm going to buy a $300,000 house and roll the gains and potential of everything in there without paying tax on that. So that is something that's, I think, an interesting strategy. It's definitely not for everyone, but maybe that'll help you guys out if, if you're in that situation looking to sell and not wanting to pay all the tax right away. But the tax will come due. Uncle Sam wants their money. So just know that's coming. John, briefly, I just want to chat on things that you might be able to expense or write off related to that rental property.
1: Yeah. So for the moment, we'll talk about 100% rental property and not mixed use because the rules can get a little bit more complex if you're living in a, a part of the unit and, and renting part of it out, but we'll ignore that for the moment. If it's a straight 100% rental property, obviously the two big things that we think about are mortgage interest on the loan and real estate taxes. Those are typically the big ones. You can't deduct the loan principal that you're paying, just the interest. So know, yeah, similar to the individual tax rules in that regard. Any other expenses related to the upkeep of the home, obviously would be deducted. As well, So repairs that you're doing to the property, if you have homeowners association dues, if you have a management company that's helping you manage the company, that's deductible as well. If you have larger improvements, let's say you put on a new roof or you have some kind of major renovations, those things are generally deductible as well. Although we get into the depreciation question there as well. So if they're considered improvements to the home, we have to deduct them over a period of time. We can't deduct them all in one year necessarily. So we've got some things there. Couple other things that you may not think of. If you are going to visit the property to take a look at it, and make sure that things are in good order, especially if you're traveling to a city outside your city to go inspect the property. Some of your travel expenses can be deductible. The primary purpose of the visit needs to be the inspection of the property. But if you want to sneak in a quick visit to a relative nearby, that's just the one area where you can sneak some of those things in as long as it's not egregious. So you truly do think about all of the expenses related to the property and make sure you're not missing some of those things that might apply.
0: I really need to start looking at rental property in Hawaii, you know, cause then I got to go and check on my property at least once a year, you know, the normal stuff, right? I might stay an extra day or two weeks, but whatever. Those are details. Now I think that's a really good piece to add in there, John, is there are some other costs that even if it's not a hundred percent, for the rental, but the idea is like, hey, I'm taking this trip and it's because I need to go do this. Even if it's not 100%, you can still write off a lot of things. It's the same thing in business. I use my cell phone 90% for business, but I still have my cell phone for when I got to call my mom, my dad and all those, my sibling and everything else. So I can't do 100%, but I can do a lot of it. I think those are really important pieces. So now let's move over to what we talked about last week which was all about investing in syndications. And I brought Dr. Kathy Carroll on from rica.io. And we were looking at what a syndication is, how it's structured, pros and cons. We didn't talk about any tax situation or how it affects your taxes. So I think if someone was to say, hey, look, I actually really liked the interview with Kathy. I'm going to go and invest in her next deal or whatever it is. How does that work from a tax standpoint then? Yeah,
1: one thing to keep in mind, uh, we'll just keep this in the background as we talk through these. Once again, this is still considered a passive investment when we're doing a syndication. So you're not actively involved. You're not running the property. So it still is a passive investment. So you're going to have passive income from this as well. The form of the tax documents that you receive are going to look a little different. And that's where things start to get a little more complicated if you haven't invested in these type of deals before. With the REITs that we were talking about earlier, you you get a 1099 at the end of the year with some dividends and capital gains. And it looks a lot like your other investments. So it's not terribly complicated compared to what you might be used to. But With syndications, you're basically a limited partner in the deal, and now you're going to receive a K-1 document at the end of the year. It's going to have 30 boxes of information on it. It gets a little bit more complicated in terms of how to report that. From an overall general standpoint, it is still considered passive income. You're still going to receive distributions from the fund. But now instead of getting taxed on the cash distributions, you actually get a share of whatever the profit or loss is for the entire partnership. So whatever cash you receive isn't going to be the tax impact. You're going to have to wait for your K-1 and see how everything shakes out on it. So it is a little different than what people are used to sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's definitely different. And it's not a scary form, especially if you're working with a CPA. It's easy for me. I get a bunch of those and I'm like, hey, John, hey, Kelly, here you go. Enjoy. Like that makes it real easy. But for all of you out there that maybe aren't working with the CPA yet, just because you do this type of thing is not going to like overly blow up your situation. It does add some complexity, but the next thing we talk about is going to be significantly more difficult. But before we get into that, I like the idea of making sure that everyone knows that just because you're investing in real estate and that's what you're hearing in the blogs and YouTubes and podcasts and all that stuff, this is still passive. So it does not offset against clinical income. This is, again, coming in the passive category. So we're three for three now on the IRS thinking it's passive. Investing in REITs, it's the most passive you can get. But it's real estate-flavored stocks, if you will. Investing in syndications, you are actually investing in large apartment buildings or storage units or whatever it may be that they're syndicating. And so you have direct exposure. And it is mostly passive. It's I think the most passive for actually owning something. You have single family homes, which is absolutely not passive, but considered passive to the IRS, which is a bummer. And now, John, let's talk about what if, let's say, Taylor's a doctor and I wasn't doing what I'm doing and I'm full-time in real estate. That is my job. Now, how is my rental? I bought that one rental in Las Vegas, let's say. How is that now taxed or how does that now flow through our joint return? Because I am now full-time in real estate.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the rules change as as Ryan has alluded to. If you are considered a full time real estate professional, and before we jump into what that means for the tax return, I always like to pause on this topic a little bit because it is truly a very important point. If you're going to move towards uh, this, what actually is a real estate professional? Because the IRS has some really good ideas as to what it is, and if you don't follow their rules, you can wind up in some trouble on the tax return. So basically, the IRS defines a real estate professional as Someone that spends 50% or more, over half of their time in some type of real estate occupation. And a lot of people will become a realtor and run rental real estate. That works. You can do that. Or certainly you can be a rental real estate professional full-time as well, or more than 50%. Also needs to be more than 750 hours a year. And I like to pause on that. Um, The Irish is serious about that. If they want to examine this issue, they're going to look for your log of what you did for each of those hours of those 750 hours. They don't screw around with it. They take it very seriously. You want to get in the habit of documenting how you're meeting that hourly requirement before you start. Like day one before you you do your investment, hour one, I filled out the books and records for (laughs) your property one. You just want to get in the habit of doing that each day and, and tracking that time.
0: I want to interrupt really quick. Also, just because I did receive an email. This is probably a couple months back. And I want to address it here because I always try to address anything you guys email me. It's harder to get it into the show because it's not a a voicemail. If you want me to truly answer your question, other people are going to have your questions. So go to financialresidency.com slash question and just record your voice or have your spouse do it or your kiddo do it. If that's the case, get your voice out because then I can put it on air and get it going a lot easier. But I did receive a question on hey, look, my spouse is looking at doing real estate professional status. I work full-time clinically. Together, we will easily break the 750 hours. Does that count? And the answer is no. You each have to have 750 hours if that's the case, or one of you has to have it. Because you work clinically and you do 100 hours on the side and they do 650 hours does not count. They, as a real estate professional status, have to do the 750 hours or more And I would be more on the or more side. I'd be very careful, uh, especially if you're going to plan this because there's some massive tax benefits that John's going to talk about in a second.
1: Yeah, it can get complicated quickly. So yeah, what I would suggest for most people that are moving in this situation, unless you feel truly comfortable with the rules and regulations, and you certainly, if you're going to do this, you want to sit down and and do some reading. But if you don't feel truly comfortable, it's where a CPA tax advisor comes into play. They're going to help you walk through this. So, So I'll just throw that out there.
0: I'm a little biased. I am obviously a little biased as well because we have a physician tax advisors and we're helping physicians all across the country with their taxes. But at the same time, this is a massive, like potentially five, six figure mistake. And the IRS is not someone you want to play around with ever. And so the things that you might be logging could be, I'd have absolutely a separate email for everything. I'd log your calls. I'd have a separate calendar that's tracking your meetings your events, the things that you're doing. You have to be very serious about tracking because the IRS is absolutely serious about this because the perks, again, John, I'll mention just a second are so massive.
1: Now, getting back to the fun part of this is okay. Why do we want to be a real estate professional? And the key here is that when we talked about it earlier, you had to keep these things in two separate buckets your rental losses, your passive losses can't offset your ordinary income, your w two income. If you're a professional, they can. So that's why we want to do this. If we qualify, then. All those depreciation deductions that we're picking up each year, that's going to be able to to offset our ordinary income. So it can be a really powerful deferral mechanism. And I say deferral, it's important here because we're taking that depreciation deduction. Now, when we go to sell these things, let's say 20 years later or 30 years later, obviously there's going to be some capital gain in the future. We don't know what those rates may be, but we are saving at least tax dollars today at rates we know. And this can be a very powerful deferral mechanism in that regard.
0: Yeah. And if you're saving money today, what do we do with that savings? We invest it again. That's what we're coming back to. Keep investing, dollar cost average in, whether it's stocks, bonds, real estate, other alternatives, whatever you're doing, always dollar cost average in. Don't go in extremes on both ends. I always like to give this little heads up. Real estate is really fun. It's the sexy topic. It's a lot of work and people who are telling you that it's not are lying to you. Right. I've done this enough to know how hard it is. And there's lots of little moving pieces keeping track of all this stuff, but there's lots of benefits to it as well. And if you are going for real estate professional status, you really should work with a CPA to make sure you do it correctly because there's a lot of moving pieces and you don't want to mess it up and end up owing a lot of money in taxes because you bought three houses and you started depreciation you know, and, and trying to offset clinical income of your spouse and all of a sudden that all comes back to bite you because you did it wrong. So be careful with that. John, obviously, you're Casey and my partner over at Physician Tax Advisors. We had a wait list for a while. We're opening that up, so maybe just tell everyone a little bit more about what you guys are working with and how they could potentially work with you and Kelly and the team. Yeah.
1: Now that we have survived the uh, May 17th tax deadline, we're ready to start thinking about next year already. So we do have a wait list out on physiciantaxadvisors.com. Still active. If you haven't added your name to the list and you'd like to work with us, please feel free to do that. We'll once again be limiting our client uh, load this year to make sure that we're servicing everybody uh, really well. Make sure that everybody has a great experience. Yeah, I would encourage you to get on the wait list earlier so that you don't get shut out this year
0: yeah because there's already almost 300 people or about 300 people on that wait list and want to make sure that we can help our community as it is but also there's no way that we can help 300 or more people on that so it will be first come first serve with that but obviously i love you you help me lower my tax bill and and actually prep my taxes and plan appropriately and you're helping so many people so thank you so much for coming on explain a little bit about how real estate and how your taxes are affected by real estate. Hopefully this is helpful. Thanks. All right, everyone, let's move over to our financial malpractice segment. I've got the famous Nathan and notes song guys. Welcome back on the show. Thank
2: you. Hello, Ryan.
0: I've upgraded you to famous because I get more emails about both of you than I do about anything else we're doing, which I am so happy Yay. that we get that because you guys are fantastic as Taylor said, that process didn't suck like the last time. There's a huge vote of confidence that you guys are doing something great at Thoughtful Wills. So I'm excited to bring you guys back on. What do we have for today's financial malpractice?
2: I'm going to tell a tale of probate.
0: <laughs> oh, yay. Probate. No, I'm just kidding. Let's let's at it. What do you got?
2: Probate court is still alive and well. But did you know that probate costs can eat up 2 to 4% of your total estate?
3: Because I think everybody knows probate is this like bad, horrific thing. I feel like I should have a sound effect, right? Like a screeching sound effect. Yeah. Probate is a court proceeding. So you have to hire attorneys. You have to serve documents on folks. So you have to attend hearings to establish. Was there a will? Who are the legal heirs? It's an actual court proceeding. And if you haven't been sued before, you can pat yourself on the back. But getting sued or going through any sort of court proceeding is expensive.
2: We're nice, affordable attorneys. Well, I have a story from our home state of North Dakota. I have a childhood friend who grew up on a beautiful farm that has been in her family for generations. You can just imagine it, right? Prairie of North Dakota, where there's so much beautiful sky and you can see the wheat Golden wheat waving the wind, and in the fall, the sunflowers turning from the east in the morning to the west. It is beautiful.
0: People in North Dakota are like, <laughs>
2: yes, that's right. It's so awesome.
0: <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's like at least 14 people.
2: And the winters are amazing there. Anyway, so my friend grew up on this farm, and she also fondly remembers summering at her family's cabin in Minnesota, also a longtime family properly. So sadly, her father developed dementia and the disease advanced very quickly. It's just, I just, it's so heartbreaking when I hear these stories and especially when they're affecting our good friends, it turns out that her parents created a will, but they never moved forward with creating a revocable living trust. And another, like another misconception, I'm going to refer to these a lot, is that people think that you either get a revocable living trust or you get a will, but actually you get a revocable living trust and it comes with a pour-over will. And I won't go too much into the weeds about that, but I think they probably didn't move forward with the trust because they probably didn't understand how trusts operate. And this lack of understanding and planning ahead cost their family tens of thousands of dollars because when both of her parents passed away, the farm had to go through probate court in North Dakota and... The Minnesota cabin had to pass through probate court there too. So you're talking about double probate fees, again, costing 2 to 4% of a total estate. Just to give you more of a concrete number, on a state that's valued at $300,000, that can cost up to $15,000 in probate fees. So just think about it as all that hard work and all those years of putting towards their family farm, $15,000 went to a court. 30,000 possibly, right? With the two states.
0: And if we look at it in terms of like physician careers, like I know that everyone listening is cool. Like I've got hundreds of thousands in debt. So I'm not there yet, but $300,000 in net worth will happen very quickly when you're a new attending. So we're talking like within a few years out of training, you will likely have the issue that No Song is, is walking through, but maybe multiply those figures by, I don't know, at least 10 And you're probably gonna have that as your probate costs if you don't do this stuff correctly. So now we're looking at 150 or 200,000. Now we're not talking Prince money, but we're talking like normal physician net worths, hundreds of thousands of dollars in probate. It's very expensive and Nathan pointed out it's not much fun.
3: It's helpful, the sooner you get this done, sooner you put your plan in place, then you can structure your assets as you acquire them and put them into the plan immediately instead of having to then do it later on the back end when you'd rather enjoy your retirement. or And especially I think too with physicians too, I think a lot of physicians invest in real estate ventures often with groups. And the thing all of those are called real property. That's the legal term for those. And real property goes through the probate process in that state. So if you own real property in multiple states, you absolutely would have probate costs in multiple states. The solution to that is to move the title of those real estate assets into your living trust. And that way, then you just you sidestep those completely. It's really slick. So yeah, if you can get your trust set up and just put your assets in as you acquire them, it's so much easier.
0: If you think that and it's, oh, I own property and these things and I have a business that goes there or I've invested in this syndication over here. like It's even more reason to get it done, not that you've gone too far. Think about someone who isn't you, that is going to be taking care of your stuff when you pass, how they're going to have to go find all of that. It's going to be next to impossible. So, notes on, was there any other piece of the follow-up on that story?
2: I wanted to point out two things. I'm a really kind of person who needs to have examples. Another example of somebody, a resident of California who passed away untimely, was the actor from Black Panther, Chadwick Boswick. Is that right? So I read a story recently, too, that he passed away without an estate plan. And, and nothing. nothing. Yeah, just nothing in place. He's got a wife. And in each state has their own probate fee structure. And California has super special fees.
0: <laughs> Why are we not surprised? Everything that California is quote unquote, super special. Yeah,
2: very super special fees. It's very expensive. And it looks like Chadwick's estate was valued at just under a million dollars. And the probate fees his wife is going to have to pay are close to $45,000 to start just to start and the other piece i wanted to say was it's great meet with an attorney yay you you got your trust woo but the other piece is following up with that and funding your trust it's so important to transfer your assets into that trust otherwise they're going to pour over into that pour over will and anything that goes through the pour over will is probateable it has to go through probate but you can bypass probate By transferring title of your real estate and ensuring that any kind of assets are named in the name of your revocable living trust, there are ways to take care of this and be really nice to your survivors.
0: Yeah. More cost efficient, easier, and it's already going to be a horrible, stressful time. Make it a little more simplistic for anyone that's picking up the pieces after you're gone. It makes total sense. Well, thank you guys so much for being back on the show and really talking through this. I think that's one of the key pieces that is missing is that, great, you might've done all these things, but now let's get everything into the trust and not going through probate as Nathan called it, the, the clearing house. Let's get it all going through there versus not funding it and not changing title and doing all the stuff that typically ends up falling by the wayside. Thank you guys so much for being on. Anyone that does not have your estate planning done, please get it done. It's really important. I talk about all the time on our Friday segments. Most people don't have it done. I'd say probably nine out of 10 people, if not more than that, that when they start working with us, don't have estate planning done. It's just one of those things that always gets quote unquote forgotten, or I'll get to it someday. Let someday be today. Please get it done. It's important. Go to financialresidency.com slash TW, you can see what Nathan and Song are up to at Thoughtful Wells. All right. Hopefully you guys learned a lot this month about real estate. Again, just a recap in case you missed other shows, we started off with kind of a high level way that you could invest in all the pretty much different ways you can invest in real estate. And then we talked specifically on investing in single family rentals, because that is one of the most popular things that you will read and hear about. And I want to give you my two cents on what we did personally to acquire. Now we've bought and sold probably 20 homes over the last decade or so. We talked about syndications and we brought on Dr. Kathy Carroll to go over that, what that is, the pros and cons. There's lots of pros, but there's also lots of cons. So please, if you're interested in syndications, all please listen to that episode. You're going to learn a ton. And then, of course, we talked about the most fun topic real estate and taxes. where? No one likes to pay taxes, but hopefully this was helpful for you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Please share the financial residency podcast with one other physician family so we can help them understand personal finance, feel comfortable with their finances and just increase their financial acumen. And obviously it'll increase their confidence as well and probably make it so they enjoy life a little bit more. So thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you guys. Next month is all on student debt. Can't wait for you guys to hear it. Before we end, let's just make sure we give a shout out to our sponsor one last time, and that is Larry Keller of Physician Financial Services. He can help you with any of your disability insurance needs. He's been around for a while. He's in a ton of physician communities, including our own, and he's helping lots of people get coverage that they need. So find Larry at doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash Larry Keller, and that is also in the description of the podcast you're listening to us in right now. All right, everyone, have a great week, and I'll catch you guys on Friday. Cheers.
3: This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a
1: great day. Bye.